Why don't you all turn to Isaiah 45? If we start on time, maybe it can end five or six minutes early. Forty-five. Four or five. Isaiah forty-five. Yeah, well, well, I can't. I can't even answer that one. Wham! All right, let's let's uh, pray and we'll get started with Bible class. We're in a really interesting part of Isaiah, uh, and we talked a little bit last week about Cyrus and the fulfilled prophecy in verse 28. We're going to pick up with Cyrus again tonight. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time as we uh, open up your word together. This is a time to profit and nourish our soul. And Father, we look forward to that nourishment as we go through and, and pick out the nuances of this, uh, these prophecies, these things that were foretold ahead of time, uh, getting to know you better as a God who is sovereign, who is omnipotent, who is who controls everything, even when in the midst of the chaos around us, we, we think things are out of control. Father, we're blessed to have uh, this building. We're blessed to have each other, to worship together, to spend time uh, hearing from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're going to try and tackle some this. In an, in, well, here's my goal. My goal is to do 45, 46, 47 and keep the continuity as much as possible. Uh, it may, parts of it are going to sound repetitious um, because uh, it is. <laughs> uh, and I found one of the best ways to teach somebody is to repeat things often and as many times as you can, uh, almost ad nauseum, but please change how you're saying it. So for 45, 46, and 47, I'm going to have a lot of the same things said differently. And you're going to say, didn't he just say that? Well, here's what he's dealing with. He's dealing with a nation that was told over and over again things. And they, when they don't do, you figure they don't listen. Um, think of any kind of child raising. You tell children to do things, and you turn around, and they don't do it. Uh, when you do any kind of instruction that's a mechanical instruction to somebody, you say, here's the three ways or five ways to do something, you show them, you give them the, uh, the, how to use the logistics of things, and you turn around and they're not doing it. You've got to do what? Teach them again, show them again, have a little patience. Um, we're going to see the long-suffering of God in here uh, immensely. We're also going to see how God uses one man who I can't find any place that he becomes a believer. Now remember, we're in the Old Testament. We're not believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We're just having faith in the God of Israel. I can't see anywhere this guy Cyrus has any faith. But yet at the same time, he says things that are one step above what your believer should say. Kind of get what I'm saying. You go by what he's saying, you say, this guy must have a deep faith. No, he's just the guy that saw the, the reality of things. Now, if we get to heaven and Cyrus is there, well, I'm good with that. Okay, I'm really good with that. At the same time, I don't see a pattern of that. And we're going to look at something called, hopefully tonight, the Cyrus Cylinder. Anybody ever heard of that? Okay, okay so it's good. It's good. So you and I are the only one familiar with it. But basically, it's a historical account that, that tells the, the trek of what Cyrus did. And it's kind of some interesting things because you read it. And I'm going, to, I'm going to read some things out to you. Um, you're going to say, only God could do that. So this means... 
life is one where we can see God's hands on it, and the purpose of that was for the nation of Israel. That's all it was. I mean, there's uh, nothing else we could see out of that. So let me give you the, the kind of breakdown of 45, 46, 47, where we're going. Uh, we've already talked a little bit about Cyrus in verse 28 of 44. That kind of, I, will, I would believe if I was doing chapter breaks, that would have started this chapter. That's just as easy as that. Of course, chapter breaks are, I hope you know this, aren't spiritual and aren't uh, textual problems. They're just there. They're, they're very uh, sub- subjective as best, I guess. Um, but I would do that for continuity because 28 begins with Cyrus and 45 verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus his anointed. So we've got to work with that. So 45 really deals um, a main, and again, this is one unit of thought that we have here. We, we're going to deal with um, this guy Cyrus and the idolatry of this nation in a different way, uh, of Israel in a different way, and how Cyrus is used. 46 and 47 deal with the Babylonians and the fall of Babylon into the hand of the Persians. So we have, but in order for Babylon to go down, the gods of Babylon got to get attacked first. So if you know anything about ancient warfare, it was your best guy against our best guy, and those represented the gods of the nation. So when you had Goliath and David, remember that? Goliath represented not only the, the Philistine nation, but he represented the gods of the nation. You take down Goliath, you showed your god the battles of the Lord's. So there's a good example. David fought for the Lord. It wasn't for him. Okay, so... That's the picture you should keep in your head about these battles. So take down Babylonian gods, um, then Babylon will fall, even though involved in the fall is a guy named Cyrus. With me so far? Um, uh, We'll have some... Here's what you're going to see, though. Even though Israel is stubborn and... He calls them a transgressor, but I think the better word later, we'll see, is rebels. So they're rebels, or rebellious towards God, and they're stubborn. And that word would be what we've said before, a hard-hearted nation. So you've got these two things that still represent Israel, even in this time period. God still protects them, and God still preserves them. Can't you say the same thing today? They're still on the map. So, And, and would you consider them... Stubborn? Yeah. Rebellious? Yeah. Uh, and one day they won't be. So we're going to look at that. We're also going to look at the image, beautiful imagery used in chapter 46 of how, how good sarcasm can be used. You know, I, I notice some people don't like sarcasm. You, you, I don't know why, because when you get older, it helps you survive. <laughs> so, so it's usually younger people say, why are you so sarcastic? Where do you get here? Um, but but the sarcasm is is so um, how can I say it other than God's punching these people in the mouth with sarcasm. So I got you got to see that, and it begin it basically is talking about burden bearing. Um, kind of picture this. I'm going to give you a preview to to 46 a little bit. Picture a camel carrying a 12 foot oblique obelisk. You know those uh, monuments. How would you put it on a camel? You put it up like this, it's, it looks really like what? What does that camel look like? Something off a chessboard, maybe, you know, a rook. You put it this way, where's, where's the camel going with this thing going like this? And that's the gods that the camels are carrying. It's a burden. Yet God's saying that's what the gods, what people do with the gods, but that's what I've been doing with you. 
Israel. So kind of get that. It's a beautiful picture, um, but it's very sarcastic. I don't know what else to do with it. Um, and then when we get to 47, we'll tie it all together because we'll deal with Babylon uh, falling. So, And what's the fall of Babylon? We'll deal with that. So, uh, chapter 45, and I'm going to do this tonight. I don't know if we'll get done with chapter 45 tonight. I, I, chapter 45 to me is one of the greatest passages on God, God's prophetic future told well in advance. He informs the people of who he intends to use for their benefit in the future. And that's, that's what we saw in our last lesson. He uses a guy named Cyrus who nobody's ever heard of in Isaiah's time. This is one of the things a lot of um, people that are anti-God's word and said it's not really God's word and they're not into prophecy they're into history, and they're saying Isaiah is telling history. Well, we've kind of already covered that last week, and I want to go back to it. But Cyrus is not mentioned a lot in the Bible, but he's mentioned enough. So we can say, we can put a good, if you wanted to, I'm not doing it, so don't get excited. But if you wanted to draw a good composite picture of Cyrus, you can get it from Second Chronicles 36, which actually ends the Old Testament if you had a Hebrew Bible. So it ends with this picture, of this person, Cyrus. We dealt with it in Ezra. Most of the book of Ezra deals with what Cyrus accomplished. Um, we had it last week, and we have it here in Isaiah 45. So 44, 28, 45, 1, Daniel 1, uh, Daniel 6, and Daniel 10. Other than that, nothing about Cyrus in the Bible. And he is a historical figure, but he plays a predominant place in Israel's history. Um, and I believe in the Word of God being divinely inspired, therefore it is prophecy. So we're, gonna, we're not going to tackle that whole paradigm of why it's not, why it's not history and it's per- prophecy. We're just going to say it's pro- prophecy. I think we did some of that in the very beginning of Isaiah. I don't remember. It's been like a couple of weeks since we started Isaiah. So. And I'm not going to go back and listen to my tapes to figure it out. But I want you, I want you to do this. I want you to go to 4522. Go to 4522. And I've never done this before, so this is one of those, man, this may come back to haunt me. I want you to, I want to read 45.22, and prayerfully by the end of tonight, you're going to have it memorized. You'll see why. It says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That is, I think that's the capstone of the whole word of God. And that he's saying it to Israel... But can we not say this to anybody? And I think this is one of the most uh, unique places to put this verse right here in the middle of Isaiah. And, and again, it's been said other ways many other times. So that's the first time I've said this verse. I'm going to repeat it a number of times, so hang on. If you want to, just keep it open to that. Okay. So here's, here's what we're going to do to, as we begin this chapter tonight. Um. You got to ask yourself a question. I think we should ask good questions when we're studying the Bible. I think it's important to ask good questions because you want good answers, right? You don't want, you know, you want to be studious. That's what the word study kind of involves, right? You want to be looking at the words and say why. And the first thing I ask is why uh, does God even mention this man Cyrus, and why why have prophecies involving him? And from 45 verse one. I don't know what to do with this. I'm going to tell you what I'll do with it, but I want you to understand what it's saying. Okay, so look at verse 1. It says, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus his anointed. Are you buckled in? You ready for this? He's calling Cyrus 
the Messiah, the Mashiach. Now, what's the first thing that went through your mind when I said that? No, he's not. Only Jesus is, right? Well, we've got to be careful with that. We'll look at it in a minute. But that's that's a crazy starting point because he's calling somebody a Messiah figure that's not even Jewish. Not a drop. I can't even put him in the realm of being Jewish, okay? Um, he's not Sammy Davis Jr. of the Old Testament. That's as easy as that. He's not going to say, I'm Jewish because I am Jewish. You know, I, I used to think it was so funny. Sammy Davis Jr., he one-eyed black man wanted to be Jewish. Didn't he have enough problems to start with? Cyrus is... is now, some of you look at me like, who's Sammy Davis Jr.? <laughs> Never mind. Uh, but the... But the point is, Cyrus had enough problems being who he was. So I'm going to give you three reasons why I believe Cyrus is so important here. And I think this is, kind of sets the stage for Bible study. First of all, with this info, there would be no doubt who God was referring to. In other words, when God says, this is my anointed one, we'll have enough information to say there's only one person could be that, in this case, dealing with this prophecy. You understand? So later, listen, this will help, he's going to call... His anointed one in Isaiah 53, which only one person can be, and he's got to match it just as well as Cyrus matches it. Get that picture? So when he goes to Isaiah 53, uh, some, pe- some Jewish people say Isaiah 53 talks about Israel. It's Israel is the Messiah. Israel's the one that suffered. Israel, it can't be. It's got to be a person. Who's that person? Well, there's been a bunch of rabbis that claim to be Messiah. Does he match that? So keep that in mind as we flow through this. Remember, we're in a part of Isaiah that's building to get to who the Messiah is. Okay? So, second, secondly, uh, if Isaiah's prophecies are to be true, this one prophecy shows that all should be held to the same standard. I look at it like this. God is, let's, let's talk about God. God is omnipotent. Can we all say that? Yes. God is immutable. That means he never changes. Right? God is provident, and in other words, he controls all the situations, not only being sovereign overall, but he controls all. Okay? So we got all these factors involved. If God sets a standard that I say something and that something comes true, what can we say about other things he said that haven't come true yet? Absolutely. He set the standard of I've said something, I've given you a prophecy, and it's come true. So sometimes we get prophecies that are very near in time. So obviously... For instance, I can look through the Bible and find many prophecies talking about Christ's first coming, his advent. There's a lot more, believe it or not, more prophecies about the second coming, the tribulation, the coming kingdom, all that. There's a lot more prophecies to be fulfilled. If I say he fulfilled these before Christ, he fulfilled the ones at the first advent, now i got a handful of prophecies greater than those, is he going to fulfill those? Absolutely. You understand? So my surety about who God is is based on what he said and what he's done. That's why he constantly brings up Israel's past about the Exodus. See what I've done? Can I not do the same thing? Because why? I don't change. And God's one of those interesting uh, things about God. He He's a promise keeper. Not a promise breaker. And he, being a promise keeper, doesn't have to worry about the variance we have to worry about keeping promises, right? Think of the variance we have to keep to say, I'm going to do something on such and such a date. How many have doctor's appointments scheduled for next week or next month? Go tomorrow. You've got tomorrow, next week. I've got a next week or kind of thing. And I made an appointment. Put it down in my book. 
what's the chances of you keeping it? And we all say what? Pretty good, pretty good, pretty good, right? Because why? We need to make that appointment. But what happens if other things happen that we can't control? And we got to call up and say, got to cancel it. Okay, so these things come up. God doesn't have to cancel an appointment. God doesn't have to change the date. God's got it all written down and knows what's going on. So I, that's why I think it's important to see that. Thirdly, a sovereign God in total control of historical facts prior to their occurrence shows even the heathen nations there is only one God. And that's, that's what's going on in this paradigm because Isaiah is not doing this in a vacuum. Um, so here's what Cyrus does. Cyrus begins his rule uh, about 549 B.C. Again, these, we're not nailing these dates down because of calendar issues, but we're really close. Okay? Uh, he, con- he conquers the Medes when he begins his uh, ruling and reigning over the P- Medes. So he conquers the Medes, therefore he combines the Medes and the Persians to become the Medes and Persians. <laughs> I don't know what else to do with that. Okay? Uh, he conquers Babylon in about 539 B.C., totally takes over uh, in 536 and makes a decree, a decree, and that's the 70 years Jeremiah had, had given a prophecy about that they'd be 70 years in captivity, so nail another one. Jeremiah made a prophecy and the 70 years are up. And Daniel prays in that 70th year saying, God, I know it's up because I read the book of Jeremiah. See how we kind of tie all these things together? Um, so in 536, Cyrus gives a decree for the Jews to return from exile to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. This is 170 years, give or take, before um, Cyrus even, uh, before uh, this all happens. Before Cyrus comes into rule, all this, Isaiah's writing this in about 701 B.C. Again, I'm not nailing times. times. Oh, okay. I thought you wanted me out of class. I could stop. Now everybody's going to look. So we're going to talk about a man named Cyrus. First we're going to read Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Nail it to the front of this, because this is great, because he calls this guy the Messiah. I don't know what else to do that. Everybody's always heard of Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus the Messiah. This is Cyrus HaMashiach. I don't know what else to do with that. And you say, don't, here's the problem though. Don't get it confused because he's not the only one. He's called an anointed one. Okay? Because anointing just means you're called basically for a purpose. God's going to use a a very special title uh, for anointed kings. King Saul was called a a Messiah, a Mashiach. Okay? In 1 Samuel 10.1 if you want to write them down, but you could just Look him up. Uh, king, obviously David is the is anointed one, right? Because he is the king. So David's anointed. Oh, by the way, all priests were anointed. All of them were uh, anointed. That's what it means. Uh, Mashiach means anointed. So they were all anointed. They were priests. Um, Jesus in Psalm 2, 2, before we get to his coming, in Psalm 2, he's called the anointed. I think Hannah read that Sunday. So we Jesus is called the anointed one. Uh but, again, he's the only non-Jewish person ever referred to as a Messiah. Because what God's going to do with him. He himself, though, is not, listen, really understand this. He is God's anointed. He's not anointed by himself. There's nothing of him that has an anointing. You understand? And I, I think some people today in various 
I don't know how to say this, church churches in America uh, use the word very flippantly. Oh, you got to get your anointing. I have no idea what that means. I, I really, I, I'm, I'm clueless as to some of this church terminology because I don't go there and not going there because um, the Bible's very specific what that is. Uh, I even was asked a long time ago when I became a pastor, were you called? I go, yeah, they called me on this thing called a phone. What do you mean? Because everybody wants to think something special happened and God dropped down a message and said this to you. And I go, what are you talking about? That's not how it works. As a matter of fact, when I was younger, the guy that mentored me says, if you could do anything but be a pastor, go do it. So that was my anointing, if you want to know how I was christened. He says, go get a job. Because it's not easy. you know. And I, and I agree with him. And, and I said that to Bobby a few weeks ago. I go, you're a police officer, state. And he goes, no, I really want to do this. I, well, okay, well, we're good. Um, but the idea is, when we talk about anointing, we, gotta, we don't overplay the messianic aspect of it. Overplay what God's going to do with him. Because God's never saying, he is this. God is saying, I've done this with him. So, so kind of think, the non-spiritual idea, where God's using him as his hands, his feet, kind of idea, his instrument to get things done. Now here's, let me kind of give you the history behind what's going on. Israel needed discipline. Well, let's go, so the Assyrians took them. Then we go to Judah. Let's just deal with Judah. Judah also needed discipline that was, that was told to that nation that they would be disciplined for what they had done spiritually uh, lacking with God. One of them was getting into idolatry. So God says, here's what's going to happen to you through not only Isaiah, but other prophets, that Babylon's going to take you into captivity. Seventy years, we said Jeremiah. Okay? So they're taken in. God's using Babylon as an instrument to discipline Israel. But there's a paradigm that's set up. They can only do so much. Babylon goes beyond what they're supposed to be doing in that discipline aspect. Now God's got to do what? deal discipline to Babylon, and he's going to use a guy named Cyrus to do it. One pagan and another pagan. Because why? Here's the interesting thing. Israel was not in a place spiritually to be used, even when they returned from captivity. God had to use somebody else to say, here's what's going to happen, because you, again, going back to Genesis 12:3, right? It says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Babylon basically cursed Israel. Cyrus never curses Israel. He blesses them. And Cyrus is rewarded. Do you understand what I'm saying? So that's the paradigm he's in. And I think that's important for us to remember that because God says in verse 1, whom I've taken by the right hand, that's basically a place of, of power, a place of honor, a place of favor, because God has led God has led Cyrus to a place where he's going to be protected by God as long as he's doing what God has called him to do. Does he know he's called by God? I, th- I don't think so. I don't think he ever read this. You know, uh, He might have been told it. I don't know. But there's no evidence to say he was. You understand? Uh, and did God give him some divine shove? Probably. Okay? Uh, but it's not saying that. All it says, and what it does say, though, it's interesting. He's used as his right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be, be shut. So this is what's going on. Uh, he's God's, so, so what we have is he's God's anointed. He's used for a purpose. 
Okay? He's God's right hand, and he's God's instrument, so that God, so that Cyrus can free the people and punish the nations who went beyond their discipline. So, not only this, I want you to understand the bigger picture. He's not only dealing with Babylon, he's also dealt with some leftover Assyrians, too. I'll show you that in a minute. Okay? And, and other people in the area. Cyrus is just not aimed totally at Babylon. Okay? He's, he's, he's aimed at this region and area of people that's doing things against God. And he uses him to open doors. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, I, I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. So God's going to go before him. And he and so the way's straight. The, way, the path is clear for him to do what he needs to do. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through the... Uh, there are iron bars, and I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places in order that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. Now, does Cyrus know that? Yeah, because he's going to know it's God. But does he respond to him as his Lord? I don't know. I can't see anything. So, um, But I want you to see this, what happens. So the rough places will be made smooth. Ready for this? This is uh, straight out of Edwin uh, Yamachachi. Yamachachi? Uh, he wrote a book called Persia and the Bible. Okay? Just hang on, because this is interesting. First of all, Cyrus went to conquer the Medes. Cyrus went to, remember, he's a Persian. He's going to conquer the Medes. So this is before the incident with Israel, right? He says, uh, he was aided by the fact that many of the Medes had defected and surrendered. He gets there and everybody's saying, I give up, I quit, I get, what? There's like really no battle. He said, okay, what do I have to do? Now, I don't know if you see God in that. See, history will say they just gave up. And I'll say, eh, don't think so. Wait, it gets better. This is nothing. Uh, when, he got, when he came to Sardis, the Ledean horses became unsettled by the camels ridden by the Persians. Which, ne- which made for an easy victory because the horses were never stable because the camels came in. So now you don't want to know why camels became a great Middle Eastern tool. Just think about that. It's crazy. Uh, if you go to Petra today, you'll see camels and horses together in the, in the same area, but they're not together. They still remain distant from each other. It's kind of like, what? Are you four-footed? You're... Anyway, but it's interesting. When he went to Sardis, the capital of Lydia, the Persians held up broken... The Persians held up... Listen, this is, this is nothing but funny. He, the Persians held up wooden mannequins like Pinocchios. <laughs> dressed like soldiers, and the city gave up. What a great military tactic. Each of you make three or four puppets, hold them up, and walk through the city because they think there's more of you in here. You're like, oh, give up! They've gotten too many numbers. I don't know who thought of that one. And all I can say is, that's God's in that. So, so far we got three pretty interesting facts, but there's more. When he went to Babylon, the Euphrates was at its lowest point ever at that time, and it made it easy to cross. They didn't have to walk on water, they just walked through the water. It's like, how do we get across this? They give it a few hours. Okay, go. The Cyrus Cylinder states that when Cyrus entered Babylon's royal palace, the people were overly happy, exuberant, and rejoicing at his presence. I mean, he's like, yay, we're done with the Babylons, come on in. <laughs> like, what? Do you see the irony in all this? Okay. Um, so when we, we look at that, 
here's one more, talking about shattered doors. When Cyrus advanced, no fortress was ever able to stop him. They even opened the doors for their, for their uh, entrance in. They actually said, okay, this is a fortress, but you just come on, use the front door. I mean, you know, I don't know the statistics of battles that Cyrus had and how many men he lost, but I would bet you they're really low. Because I read Isaiah 45, verse 22, that says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Not only that, all, this, all these, these hidden, it says in verse 3, hidden treasures, uh, hidden wealth, Treasures of darkness, hidden wealth of secret places. Cyrus recognized the hidden treasures in places, built up his wealth, understood um, what this wealth was for, and know what this wealth ended up going to? The building projects in Israel. Cyrus said, well, I got plenty. I got so much abundance. You can have this. Where did it come from? Cyrus making these, conquering of these foreign entities. Verses 4 through 7 what we have here is what God did. Uh, how, why did God do these things for Cyrus? Uh, first of all, Cyrus has never claimed in the word of God to be a believer acting on God's behalf. Um, twice it states that Cyrus says through you, twice it says in verses 4 and 5, though you have not known me. So I don't know what else to do with that. Uh, look at the end of verse 4. It says, though you have not known me. So there's a, there's a no ability of God. In other words, something's happening that's miraculous. Something's happening supernatural. Some, I'm being used by somebody, but I don't know. I don't have a relationship with this God. You understand? Uh, remember, Cyrus is still very much a Persian. I don't know what else to do with that. Other than many gods had they. Okay? Uh, and we know because of what God said, that God chose Cyrus years before he was born to be this instrument. So uh, think what it would take to mold somebody before they're even born to be that right person born that he can have this kind of uh, uh, an ability to rule a nation and run a nation and run over other nations. I don't know what else to say about that kind of thing. Um, so here's, here's reason number one why God chose him or he wanted to use Cyrus for these things. It's to cause Israel, my chosen one, to be given a title of honor. I, I think that's interesting. God used this man so that Israel would be given a title of honor. Verse 4 says, I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. So what happens is t- Cyrus gets the title placed as a leader of the Medes and he passes that down so that Israel is entitled Kind of get what I'm saying? Otherwise, Israel probably would have never been... Well, God would have used something else. But we know God used Cyrus to get them to go back uh, and to do that. Uh, uh, what, a, what an interesting thing that God allows this man to say, look, verse 4 begins, we didn't even read the beginning of verse 4, for the sake of Jacob my servant and Israel my chosen one. So it's everything's happening for who? For the sake of Israel. What did they do to deserve this kind of care and concern? Nothing. But God had a plan and purpose. If Israel was wiped out right now in the time of Isaiah, um, we all wouldn't be here. Do you know that? At all. I mean, not even physically, more than likely. Um, just think of that. Where would you be today if there was no Messiah? 
God didn't keep his word, where would you be? You know, we, we you know, uh, there would be so much. This was necessary to keep Israel around, because why? Israel carried the seed for the Messiah, right? Well, we all understand that. Um, so when we have this one, and it's kind of almost pivotal, pivotal, pivots on this one man to keep history flowing. It almost seems like that, that God's using this one guy to make sure Israel stays, stays in the place it is. Uh, and it's, it's hard because n- neither one is understanding, either Israel nor Cyrus is understanding who's really in control. Um, verses 5 and 6 says this, I am the Lord, there is no other. Did, did we not already say that? Didn't, didn't verse 22 say, for I am God and there is no other? You see the repetition that's coming on here? Like crazy. Okay? Listen. Verse 5 says this. The book ends in verse 5 and 6 is fantastic because it says, I am the Lord. There is no other. Beside me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. Again, I will take care of you. You don't know me. So when things are happening, you're not going to reflect and say, Oh man, I can see God in everything. I'm not going to say that. Verse 6 says that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. So the other key piece in there is that so that Israel will know and the world will know, all will know, we could just put that in there, and recognize one true God and there is no other. So when we look back on this historical account, now we can look back on it, we can really say the world is guilty because they did not recognize God's hand. All are guilty, because why? He said, I'm doing this so you all see. You all will know. And how, how, how many people, you know, it's fascinating, because I'm getting kind of amped up a little bit to do something for Easter. And it's amazing how many people can name Jesus, tell you things about Jesus, can tell you biblical facts, but don't have a relationship with him. And just says, well, yeah, he's real, but doesn't affect my life. What? What? You just said he's a real what part of him is not real then? Because if he's real, he was sinless, he was a savior, right? We can go on. Died on the cross for your sins, yes. Rose again, yes. Lives today, yes. Going to return, yes. So what part of that's not real, if he was real? Oh, no, no, he was re- but he was just a good teacher. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. None of that makes Don't tell me he's a good, yeah, he was a great teacher. Absolutely, but he's more than that. So the recognition factor, I think, what we see here is all are held guilty because God has done everything so that there is knowledge of him out there. Kind of get what I'm saying? And I think, as you read verses 5 and 6, along with, what would I say? Verse 22, which says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. We look at these three verses and we can say what? It's all about what God is doing and has done and will do. Um, even though we're Israel's central to this whole thing, it's still about God. Uh, and, and, and for all to know he is. So when we get to eight, chapter uh, 45, verse 8 through 25, all we have is the, the supremacy of God explained through all those pages. Uh, those uh, verses, excuse me. All those verses are... are are po- poetically beautiful passages about God in all the Old, Old Testament, all the Word of God, basically. We're going to see some beautiful things here in the guise of poetry, so don't miss it. 
um, and we're going to talk about it briefly as much as we can. But Isaiah is, is made up of 66 chapters. Uh, but I don't get locked up in that because we, we talked about it briefly. We don't know what the chapter breaks are. Those are all man-made if you don't know that. Um, I was once told the Old Testament was done by a guy on bad horseback. So every time the horse went down, that's a chapter break. Every time he went back up for long periods of time, it was reverses, bang, chapter, verses, bang. You know, I don't know. It's just kind of comical. That's all. We don't know rhyme or reason. But it's interesting that God does use those 66 chapters because a lot of them line up with New Testament books. I don't know if that was the providential oversight, which is possible. For instance, chapter 66 is Revelation. When we get to Isaiah 66, we can say, yeah, that's Revelation. Because why? book of Isaiah ends with a new heaven and new earth. What, is I, what does the end of Romans, I mean, Revelation end with? New heavens, new earth. I mean, those are the common factors. Chapter 1 lines up with Genesis. Some of Genesis, not all of Genesis. But you can see things. Chapter 45, which we're in, is Romans. The reason I say that is because we're in a place that's just elevating the glory of God. That's all it does. What is that? What if you read Romans? It's all about what what God has done for man that man cannot do for himself. It's a theological heavy book. I think Isaiah does it very briefly in one chapter. Okay, and that's what we're looking at. So let's kind of uh, look at this description here. So we'll start in verse eight. It says, "Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up, and salvation bear fruit, and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord." Have what? Created it. You know, one of the first things we got to understand is that God is creator as creator. And this thought is repeated and repeated. So we're going to go through it and you're going to see the repetition of this in different ways. But if God is creator, no, since God is creator, catch me on what I'm saying, since God is creator, it's demanded that the humans respond to the creator. Nothing else. So those that believe in evolution are responding to air. Okay? We are to respond to our creator. He's our maker. Uh, and, we, and we talk about that word and idea. Well, let's go to verse 9. It, it helps us because he says, I have created it. Verse 9 says, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. Or fashioner. I like that. Designer. One who shapes. You're going to argue with someone who's made you the way you are. Are you stupid? I mean, that's kind of what's saying. How can you argue with somebody that's the designer? You know, you ever have an argument with somebody and say, no, it's not built right, that's not done right, the car should have been made this way, and you go, what are you, I'm the designer. Really? You know? Um, it also says the one who formed, it says he goes, the idea of maker is also the one who forms, shapes, molds, forms, fashions, I like those, all those words. Um, but it also it also are uh, hints of uh, shaping and form. So everything that has a shape, a form, a design, God was in the planning of it all. So if you say, why is that tree like that? God. Why do seasons like this right now? Well, because of fall, but God's in control. God knows the seasons and so on and so forth. So we can say, I can, can you see God in everything? That's what's going on here. Then, he's, then he talks, and we've already mentioned a little bit, Creator, um, also remember the aspect of creators making things out of nothing. Um, just because people today are very creative, and sometimes we say they're artistic, they're not making something out of nothing. They're just using a skill. Get the difference? 
I want to make sure we're... Because when the word creators use, it's a form of bara, which means out of nothing. Uh, Latin would be ex zillo, out of nilo, out of nothing. Okay? Um, then it goes on in... Well, let's just read through it a little bit. Uh, verse 9, the middle of verse 9. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Uh, we've heard that before, right? Or the thing... You are making, say, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, why are you begetting? In other words, I, I know kids are saying that. Why have you ever had me, Dad? Why would you have me? What are you talking about? It's not something that should be asked. Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his Maker, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who have made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands. I ordained all their hosts. I have aroused him in righteousness, and I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, I'm going to use this guy and it's nobody's business, and this is why I'm using him. I have to answer to nobody. And if you try to question me, who the heck are you to question me? You get the picture? Because how can a Job question God? That's, that's the picture we should be getting in this idea. And we should get the, the idea, the point that's being made here is very effective. Um, and uh, so let's look into this idea here in verses 11 of God's control of the future. Uh, he says, ask me about the things to come. You, you, did you catch that? Ask me about the things to come. Where's God going to give us the answer? You say, God, what's going to happen? And he says, read your book. Read your book. You know, t- uh, if God created, if God made, if God's, and, and I'm using this if in a, the condition it is, if God created, if God made, if God designed, if God formed Israel, and if God knows the future, it would be absolutely outrageous for man to try to take things out of God's hands. So we got to go back. Since God did that, isn't it an outrage for man to take things out of God's hands? When people say, when did life begin? When God said so. But it is life. We should not be taking it. You understand? I think it's simple things we can answer. You know, uh, so when he raises up a guy named Cyrus to make, uh, and he makes his way smooth, and he builds a city, whose city is he? What is, what is he doing? Isn't he doing it for God? Isn't it God's city? Because he says he's going to allow the exiles to go free. God uses one man a Gentile, to aid in Israel's recovery. Do you see the irony in that or not? Now, for a second, plug in Jonah and Jonah's reaction to the Ninevites. Because Jonah wanted nothing to do with the Ninevites because they were heathen. Now God is using the heathen to put Israel back in its place. Do you see the irony in that? Uh, not only to aid in Israel's history, but um, recovery, not only aid in it, but to basically finance the program. That's pretty good, right? He was a socialist democrat running for office. I'll give you everything you need, just go back. He said, oh, that's good. What do we have to do? Nothing, just go back and take this stuff with you. <laughs> okay, get it done. Uh, it's, it's fascinating because Cyrus doesn't even know he's on God's payroll. 
Just think about that for a minute. And God's doing all this to show one thing that it says in verse 11. God's doing all this to show Israel. He is the only one of Israel. And they don't catch on. So let's read verse 22 again. It says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Do you see this heartbeat through this whole section? Verses 14 through 17. God is in equal control not only of Cyrus, but of all nations, especially those who have dealt uh, a bad hand to Israel, who have cursed Israel. And these nations one day will turn to God. Verse 14 says, Thus says the Lord, the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush, the Sabaeans, men of statue, will, all, will, will come over to you and will be yours. They will walk behind you. They will come over in chains and will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you. Have we heard that before? Within the Word of God, when God is with you and there is no one else, no other God? Have we heard that before in this chapter? You get the repetition yet? He's, he's hammering his home. Uh, verse 15 says, Truly thou art God who hides himself, O God, o, o God of Israel. Savior. Here's another one. Savior. Deliverer. Um, Israel's always looking for the duality. When Jesus came, one of the reasons they rejected him is the first thing they thought this Messiah would do what? Overthrow Rome. Get rid of Rome. Get rid of the harsh uh, taxation and the Roman occupation and get them out of there. And Jesus says, you know, one of the things he says is like, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh-oh, that's not what my Messiah would do. My Messiah, the one I want, it would do this. They overlooked everything else because he wasn't doing what they thought he would do. And if he's not going to do what they thought he was going to do, he can't be who he was and who he claimed. That's why one of the greatest questions in the Bible that Jesus asked is, who do you say that I am? I think that's a very poignant question, isn't it? Shouldn't everybody be able to answer that? Who do you say Jesus is? Oh, he's an Elijah. Well, that's not that's not the Messiah. It's Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, that's good, but that's not the Messiah. So, as we look at this, it's interesting to see this. Uh, verse 16 says, after he talks about Israel's Savior, Deliverer from that duality, that they would be escape their enemies, and that they would also be spiritually right with God, that God would, but, what does it say? Turn to me, verse 22, and be saved to all the ends of the earth, including Israel, for I am God, and there is no other. Verse 16 says, they will put to shame and even, even humiliated all of them. The manufacturers of idols will go away together in humiliation. Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. So this again is looking to the future declaration of what Israel will be like, uh, to the f- future, uh, Israel that, that in eternity will never be put to shame or humiliated. Up until this point, they've been put to shame and humiliated I don't know how many times. Because this was in Isaiah's time. Now we go from Isaiah's time to our time, and there's multitude more times Israel's been in that place. Uh, but again, we, ask, we have to ask a question. Um, how does God show his control? So when we, when we get to verse um, 17, uh, let's see, 18 and 19, it says, Thus says the Lord God who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. 
He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. So when God designed the earth, he, he put it for a place where people could live in, I'm going to say this in a, in a solid way, this was never meant to what it is today. It was meant to be a utopia, a perfect environment for, for man to live in, in harmony with his maker. Okay, Sin destroyed that, but that I want us to understand that. Uh, so he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no one else. I think that's been repeated a couple of times, right? I, ha- I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. In other words, God's very open. Um, if you were to do a survey of thus saith the Lord, you'd find it throughout the Bible. So God has spoken to his people. How are the idols doing so far? How many idols have ever wrote a book? How many idols ever spoke to a man? Even though people think Allah has spoken, he's never spoken, never said a word. I think he was a stone at one point, if I'm not mistaken. Um, let's reread 19, just to get continuity. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. In other words, when he was bringing the nation, he was bringing them to a very lush place. Uh, remember when Abraham and Lot stood on the mountain and said, which way do you want to go, Lot? Take your choice, because it doesn't matter to me, because it's all it's not like it is now, but Lot said, I'll go this way. It was a dumb choice, but he went that way, direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham went the opposite, and they all had plush areas. Um, so he says, I, the Lord, speak righteous, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. It's just as easy as that. If you have a God or you have some kind of uh, religiosity about something, can that God save? You know, my mom called me the other day about something and she says, I don't understand the Catholics venerating Mary so much. She didn't save anything. That's an interesting point. So they made a deity out of Mary. What did Mary save? You know, she's the mother of God. No, she's not. She's the mother of Jesus. God has no mother. You know that, right? Okay. Um, but notice he says this again. Get the get the get the sarcasm. A wooden idol. Wood had many purposes, and still has many purposes. I think wood's fascinating. At the same time, it could sink. It could make a house. At the same time, it could float. It could make a boat kind of thing. And you're going, what, what's wood? And it also could do what? Burn things down. It's very flammable. Um, you know, builds houses and so on and so forth. But uh, wood's never saved anybody. Not that. Well, I mean, if somebody says, well, my life preserver was wood. Wood. Well, okay, wood. You now have become a Bodite and start a new religion because wood saved you. Um, but, I mean, seriously, it doesn't save. Verse 21 says, Declare and set forth ca- uh, your case. Indeed, let them consult together who has an- announced this from old, who has long since declared it. Is it not I, the Lord? For there is no other God beside me. I, a righteous God and Savior, there is none except me. How many times now is that? They said, no one else but me. I've checked around. I am God. That's it. Now, it's not uh, the place where God is being obnoxious. And it's not a place that God's saying, you know, look at me. Because God does deserve all the glory. He's doing something because he's God. You you get what I'm saying? Oh, look, 22 is right in front of us. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am 
God, there is no other. I, I think, do we get it yet? I'm just trying to find out. Um, it's interesting, the word turn here, see, I didn't tell you what this verse meant. <laughs> just said memorize it. The word turn here is very imperative. In other words, this is a command God's giving. Let me tell you about a command. It's very good you do this because it's the best interest in you to obey God's command. So when God gives a command, it's really good to do it. It's not a suggestion. You know, it's not like, you know, would you like to take the garbage out? And you say, well, no, not really. <laughs> no, I'm asking you, take the garbage out. Well, not really because I'm taking it as the same idea of me, you asking me politely if I would like to do it. Well, of course I don't want to do it. God's saying this is imperative. You have, you have only two things in life to make a choice on. To turn or not to turn. That's it. Which is really basically one, right? Uh, he says turn. Uh, now, I'm going to tell you something about this word. If you were to open up a Hebrew lexicon, which I have on my desk at home, okay? And you would look up this word. It's seven and a half pages of definition. Seven and a half pages for one word. Turn yourself around and look at something. In other words, you have to turn yourself from where you're at, turn around and focus on something. Not just turn around. Because turn around means what? I don't know, I just turn around. I just turn. What does it mean? Unless you're turning around, taking your eyes off of something and putting them on something else. Okay? So when God's saying this to his people, he says, you need to take your eyes off of what you have your eyes on and put them on me. Why? Because he said how many times in here, there's no other God beside me. Put your eyes on me. Tell him I'm sorry for whatever I said. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. What's required for someone to come to God? Now we say, well, turning is doing something. Well, that's, that's the equivalent in the Old Testament of coming to the Lord by faith. What would you do? I placed my faith. I had my faith. In, somebody's got, everybody's got faith. Yes or no? Okay. We all have faith in something. And some people say, well, I'm, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in, you know, da, da, da. Well, you still believe in something. You believe you're right and you're your God. P- turn from that and put your faith in Christ. So when we talk about this, nothing's required uh, of anybody other than change your spiritual direction. Get your spiritual bearings. That's it. God's saying, turn. What is he saying? Turn to me. You have to recognize you're in the wrong direction, facing the wrong thing. That's not me. Turn to me. Kind of get what I'm saying? Uh, Set your uh, direction on me. And I believe, as we've quoted this ad nauseum tonight, I think we, we learned that Israel's in a very bad place, and it's very simple. Turn to me. And you'll be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Notice what he says after this, though. I have sworn by myself. You know, ever ever heard somebody say, I swear to God? Well, that's kind of a weird swearing, isn't it? I think we brought it up a little bit Sunday on O's. Um, When we swear to God, we're just trying to prove that whatever we're saying is the truth instead of being people of truth. But when God swears by himself, he's saying, I'm going to uphold the truth. I am the truth. And he says, I swore myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness. So God has spoken out the words. The words we have are truth. And I will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow. Everybody ever heard this before? Every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Have we heard that anywhere? Paul stole that. Right? 
He wrote Philippians and he stole this verse. Philippians 2.10, right out of it. Well, Paul knows the Old Testament. And he knows at some point this is going to occur in human history where every, every, and not, not some, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say to me, only in the Lord, uh, our righteous, our righteousness and strength, uh, the idea of the Lord is righteous and He is our strength. Men will come to me, come to Him, excuse me, and all who are angry at Him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all offspring of Israel will be justified and will be glorified. Not yet. That's, that's, that's the end of the book. I read it. I cheated. Okay? But in this glorious passage that says in the end, in the end, they will turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God, and there is no other. I don't know how many times I did it, but I did one. Hopefully and prayerfully, you got that nailed. I don't have to test you on that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time as we've looked at this wonderful chapter of Isaiah, seeing truly uh, what was before them, that it was not about Cyrus, it was not about their condition or their situation, it was always about you. And Father, help us to focus our lives and our circumstances and, and whatever goes on in, in exactly who you are, our maker, our creator, our designer, the one who is, is called our Savior. Father, we thank you for the plan that you've come up with and the guidance you have over our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.